0: I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Bo Machayo, who is the co-chair of the Africa Working Group for NextGen and has extensive experience as a public policy and public engagement advisor with stakeholders and elected officials at the local, state, and federal levels. He has worked on a wide range of issues, particularly related to the economy, climate, and Africa. Bo, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Grant and Zoe.
0: We always like to start with the big question. How did you get into foreign policy? What made you think this was a good path for you?
1: I'm a first-generation African-American. I was born here in Maryland. My mom is from Uganda. She came here during the Civil War with India Amin as a U.N. refugee. Uh, And my dad came to study business and medicine. They met actually right here in Washington, D.C. My dad's from Kenya. My mom's from Uganda. Met at an East African restaurant in D.C. And a couple years later, ended up having me and my three siblings to follow. And growing up, my stories um, at the dinner table were always around what happened in Uganda, the dictatorship, and then ultimately the switch to democracy afterwards. And so we were always paying attention to what was happening in East Africa and Sub-Saharan politics. That was my kind of upbringing. Uh, I was memorizing the, the countries in Africa rather than the states in the U.S. And then at school was, was memorizing, um, that and I had the opportunity to learn both my parents' languages growing up as well. And so it was just a natural, just from lived experience and just the immigrant story and having a, an appreciation for both the states and the continent. I just naturally found my way into foreign policy. How do you think that familial
0: relationship has changed the way maybe you think about the issues facing the continent or maybe how you see America approaching things differently than you feel like if you were raised differently, you would, you know, see
1: things? Yeah, I think that the African diaspora, which I'm a a part of, has a unique lens both very pro-american and then also figuring out the best way to really work on whether that's bilateral regional issues and figuring out what's best for the continent and then also what's best for the United States I'm grateful to have two parents who who got to live out their American dream and there's a uniqueness of the diaspora also wanting to figure out how to best help their home country out and so my africa policy is very much diaspora first and leading in that way and i think it's a very interesting and happy to talk a little bit more about this that we really do focus in on you know whether that's south america we we lend a lot of our voice to the latino community to rightfully dictate us south american policy the same with india the same in in asia but we don't really do it as much when it comes to us africa relations And that's really what I've been focused on in my time here in D.C. and working in foreign policy is just making sure that we're centering that, because I think when the African diaspora voice is centered in our Africa policy, we'll actually be able to get a lot more in terms of a U.S.-Africa relationship than we currently have right now.
2: How does the diaspora-first foreign policy differ, I would say, sort of policy outcome-wise from whatever it is we have, and, and can you talk a little bit more about what it is that we're, that we're sort of working with as the default?
1: Yeah. So not to say that other folks don't have a skin in the game, but for instance, I'll, I'll mention something, remittances, uh, for instance, you know, the African diaspora in terms of giving back to the continent is two to three times multiplier in terms of the remittances that go back to their home country than what we do in U.S. foreign policy and aid the diaspora looks at things in a different lens in a in the complex lens that i think some americans look at politics domestic politics here of you know there's democrats but there's you know your moderate democrats your your left leaning democrats your your kind of in between democrats and so you know i think the diaspora looks at the holistic picture sometimes and sometimes i think in a us in a us africa foreign policy we can get bogged down into is this the right leader for this country is this X, Y, and Z. And I think that that actually doesn't allow for us to actually focus on, on the shared mutual interests that we have as a country when it comes to US-Africa foreign policy. And I think that's where the diaspora likes to focus more on is what what is our shared interests rather than and partnership. I think is one thing you'll hear a lot of folks in the diaspora say is, where are the places we can partner together? And when we do partner some of those tangential things whether that's you know fighting for democracy or some of the cultural issues that don't necessarily come as a default to some some African countries I think that's when they're more on an economic kind of first messaging and priorities rather than I think what we've been doing in US Africa foreign policy is really focusing in on democracy and some of who the leadership are in certain countries not to say that that's not important but I think that that comes second that comes as a way of finding where we have common ground first and then ultimately working on some of those other issues.
2: How would you characterize the Biden administration's policy towards sub Saharan Africa
1: up until this point? The Biden Harris administration, I think, has a unique opportunity to engage the diaspora in a way that previous administrations really haven't done so before. The Biden Harris administration was the first uh, presidential campaign to actually have a an African diaspora agenda on the campaign, and so that, within of itself, is kind of an indicator of the level of importance that the diaspora I feel like has uh, within this administration. Uh, but there's definitely room for improvement when it comes to continuing to engage this community. I think that you saw a lot of Ethiopian diaspora uh, across the country, not necessarily when it came to the initial engagement with Ethiopia. Once um, Prime Minister Abiy took office, I think when it came to the Ethiopian diaspora, there was some hesitancy to embrace what they felt was misguided policy. But I think since then, the Biden-Harris administration has been pretty intentional on making sure that they are engaging the diaspora community to help inform them on what policies that they should be taken. And that also goes for members of Congress. I think that you've seen them actually get become more engaged with the diaspora community, and which I think has helped inform U.S.-Africa policy as well.
0: So, Bo, what are some of the issues or topics that you've been following from the continent over the last few weeks?
1: Undoubtedly, one of the things that I've been following is the Kenya election. I think you saw a host of leaders from across the, the world comment on the necessity to have a a peaceful election cycle, and to accept the results of the election, even if your candidate didn't win. And it's been a, as I'm sure many folks who have been paying attention to the continent, Ruto is the kind of vice president to Kenyatta, and Kenyatta endorsed his opponent Um, Ryla Odinga. And it's been uh, fascinating to see the results of that election. Ruto has been declared the winner by many news outlets has been declared the winner. And not only has uh, a lot of the Kenyan diaspora shown support um, to him, but you've actually seen bordering countries who are also part of this, the regional integration effort called the East African community, also come out and publicly support Ruto, and I think that that's something that's commendable to see a a region back someone who, based off of the results, won the won the election. Although there is some Odinga is currently objecting those, I think that it says it says there's a good good bit of confidence from folks across the region and across the continent that the post election results are going to stay solid. And so that's, that's been interesting. And then to stay in the region, also I've been w- watching uh, what's been happening in Ethiopia. I think that that's been a constant issue that folks in the diaspora have weighed in on and folks across the continent have weighed in on. And one thing that you constantly hear from African countries is the need for true partnership. And I think that regardless of where you stand in what's happening in Ethiopia, it's been interesting to see African leadership, not only in regional, but also through the form of the AU, really kind of take a stand and provide solutions to the issues that are happening within the continent and within each specific country. And so last week, the World Food Program, through their executive director, mentioned that, uh, and there had been also multiple reports around Folks in the TPLF seizing fuel, which was impacting folks in Tigray, which was interesting. And just the general history also of Ethiopia, I think, is something that when it comes to the continent, sometimes people, I think their default reaction is, the history of this country is so complicated. You know, I can't really take a side. And one of the things that I would encourage folks to do is uh, the history of each you know country or continent might be complex, but it's not Impossible to understand. Similar to our country here in the United States, it's a complex and interesting historical country that we live in. But you can understand it through studying and through the lens of kind of folks' experiences. And so, I'm encouraged because in, in Ethiopia, I'm encouraged that the government has been leading on finding a solution to negotiate peace and, and lessen uh, current hostilities. And I'm hopeful that that, although there has been in the past couple of days, hostilities that have heightened, I'm I'm hopeful that the Ethiopian government continues on this pathway of focusing on what's best for the people rather than what's best for any certain political party. And I think that's also how you how you saw the rise of this current Ethiopian government in the first place. And so those are two things that I've been paying close attention to on the continent.
2: When people say that they struggle to understand the complexity of a place or region. And therefore, you know, it sounds like often kind of throw up their hands and say like, you know, it's too complex. I can't take a side. What is your recommendation when it comes to getting up to speed on, let's say on Ethiopia, but really on any country or region? Is it about reading the history? Is Is it about just consuming a lot of content today about what's happening on a day-to-day basis? Is it about talking to either people who are on the ground in Ethiopia or members of the diaspora. Like what, what are the ways that you would recommend for somebody who maybe feels like a lot of this history and politics is out of reach to begin to digest some of that complexity?
1: I think it's an all-encompassing strategy. I think sometimes, similar to what we do here in the U.S., you go to the people who agree with you the most. So, if I have a friend who is a Democrat and I am a Democrat, if I, if that is my political philosophy, then I'm going to maybe that I'm going to go to my democratic friend and talk about how Republicans are messing up the country or or whatnot. When it comes to the diaspora, I think one of the things let's take Ethiopia, for example. One of the things that's first important to understand is that that is the only country on the continent that ha- that wasn't colonized so that kind of at first gives you a an understanding of both the proudness of and pride that comes with being an ethiopian whether you're amhara or Romo, tigrayan there's a certain pride that comes with hey i was not col- i was a country that was not colonized so i think that that is kind of the first regardless of what you know ethnic tribe that you are i think that's the first thing that you that you should and want to, you need to understand when it comes to that then when it comes to what were the ways in which they weren't able to be colonized, and then what was the form of government, what was the subsequent form of government? So for many times, they had you know kingdoms, and how, how did they rule through pre-Prime Minister Abbey, their form of government, although there was a head of state, was largely an ethnic federalism, where there was governorships of the money flew down from the federal government, and then the folks in Tigray got... Their money. The folks in Amhara got their money. Their folks in their folks in Oromo got their money. And if you lived in a certain state within the country, you actually and you let's say if you were Amhara and you lived in the Oromo region, then you actually couldn't vote in that place. And so realizing kind of okay, saying hey, and at the same time, what were some of the kind of foreign partners that were working with? Ethiopia at the time. You had the US had a really good relationship with them. So setting that as a base, you now understand that some of the complexities between the way that the US views a country like Ethiopia, seeing the rise, economic rise within a country, seeing there be seeing a lot of trade happening. They're one of the few countries that benefits from AGOA to this day. And so you kind of get that baseline of this is how it's been. And then ultimately. You get the current prime minister Abby, who is a, a product of Ethiopia's largest two ethnic tribes being both Oromo and Amhara, and the ruling faction for most of the kind of uh, the the years of really good economic rise were folks in the TPLF, and so you got to understand. So once you you get a bunch of, you get kind of multiple groups that take it as a point of pride and privilege, which they should, that they were never colonized. And then you get, kind of get a rise in economic power within a country. And then you now have new leadership. And with new leadership, regardless of what country you're in, there's a transition period that new leadership needs to take to to, kind of understand how to run a country, regardless of if it's the United States, if it's Ethiopia, if it's, Nigeria, running a country isn't the easiest thing to do. And so kind of understanding the history behind it, the migration of where people came, how people ended up in different countries and regions across the world, and then also understanding what are some of the foreign influences that bring a country into the current state that it is today. And I think when you realize some of what our natural reactions have been in the US, my opinion has been more kind of sanctions driven if we don't like a certain leader in a country, or we might not have the previous relationship with that said leader in a country. We don't sometimes understand or aren't willing to kind of do a little bit deeper dive on, are we talking to both sides of the argument, or both sides of the conflict? Are we doing our due diligence to see where certain influences are? Are we checking kind of our own internal biases on who we think might be right or wrong when it comes to a certain when it comes to a certain analysis of what's happening in a country and i think that if you are able to to honestly do that you ultimately kind of get a fuller picture of actually what's happening and why certain factions of people either feel unheard feel why certain actions are needed or why certain reactions have been unfair and i think that that exercise is helpful to do and it's, it's necessary to do in a host of other issues. I, I hope that, you know, as we continue to have a better U.S.-Africa foreign policy, that all those aspects are brought to the table as well. And ultimately, you know, I'm a big fan of, of having the diaspora at the table. I think they're some of the most underutilized constituencies that we have here in the United States. And we really do utilize them for a host of other international engagements. We do that a lot for South America. We do that for folks in Europe, and we also do that for folks represented in Asia. I, I hope that we start as the diaspora continues to grow, that we utilize them to understand the complexities of the, the, the country, to hold certain leaders accountable for issues that we, need to, that we believe to be resolved, but to also find areas of common ground. That then ultimately lead to us actually being able to resolve the issues that we think need to need to be uh, course corrected or changed. Ultimately,
0: how do we actually engage in a partnership that makes it more equal footing? Because like the U.S.'s economy GDP PPP is seventy times larger than Ethiopia right? We're the world's superpower. And you look at Ethiopia, and Ethiopia has obviously the civil war that's been going on for a few years now. They had a ceasefire that's since fallen apart. The economy was on the way up. Now it's kind of stuck because of the civil war. How do we actually engage with them in a way that is as equals and not go in and just like, Put the full weight of America in relations with Ethiopia, but more broadly the continent, because even you know South Africa, Egypt, often seen as some of the larger leaders in the in the region, they're tiny compared to us too, right
1: yeah, so uh, you know when you talk about GDPs, obviously we have a, a large one here in the u s when you look at I'd go back to saying. 25% of the uh, workforce in the world and the population in the world are going to be, are in Africa. The fact of the matter is, is that, you know, the population in the United States isn't growing as fast as that in the continent and other parts of the world. When you talk about things, let's take rare earth minerals, for example, where are most of those found? Those are found in emerging markets, both in the continent of Africa and Asia and South America. And there are a lot of Places where our country, in terms of doing, if if there are things that we want to participate in, if there are things we talk about, you know, increasing manufacturing here in the U.S., we talk about some of the, we talk about, you know, high skilled immigration or high skilled workforce that we need. We talk about finding allies in some of our other in our geopolitical, the way that we look at the world through a democracy rather than uh, forms of authoritarianism. There are a lot of and we and we talk about gender equality, as well as being things that we look at in the US lens that have actually, you know, in some places in Africa, in some countries in Africa have leapfrogged in terms of what we have been able to do. For example, in Uganda, Parliament right now is a majority women. We're nowhere near that parity here in in the US. You take some of the most climate-friendly and energy-friendly kind of policies. You take the GERD, for instance, in Ethiopia. It's powering through clean energy sources. And so I think that a lot of times the true partnership really comes into play of saying, where are the advantages and what are the places where we can work together? Partnership is not, I am going to go and tell you how to do something. And when the United States Allows for us to look at emerging markets in that lens. I think that it not only helps our domestic policy and creates allies across the across the world, but it also is a a place where you will start to see economies grow at a scale where they start to have equal footing with the United States. You take South Korea, you take Japan. At one time, those places weren't uh, weren't areas where the GDP was seen as to be significant. But through finding areas of common ground, finding areas of where we could work together, you've seen the trajectory of those countries. And ultimately, I believe that you'll see the trajectory of countries in Africa begin to shift and continue to grow in a significant way. And then I'd also say I think one of the things that when we talk about Africa, we love to point out everything that's going wrong. We're quick to say there's a civil war, or there's what we kind of give these broad terms and uh definitions to situations that are happening on the continent whereas in when you go there when you go in country, you don't actually you are not using those same terminologies as people here in the u s are I have many uh, white American friends who live in Addis or who live all over Ethiopia, and they do not. Say that there's a civil war happening in Ethiopia. And so, if African countries and African nations during administrations, depending on what they thought about it, a US administration, said that there was a civil war happening in the US, would that be an accurate representation of what's happening? So, when we talk about partnerships, we have to be careful on how we're phrasing what's happening in certain countries. Otherwise, we do get down this road where there is a we are the big country coming in and we're not willing to to discuss some of the nuances that are happening when we also want folks to accept some of the nuances that happen in our own country as well. And so I think that's the first step of being able to do so. And I'm encouraged to kind of see how the Biden-Harris administration does that. And I'm excited to also see how Congress moves in engaging the diaspora and then also engaging African nations and countries as a whole, because If the U.S. doesn't do it, we've seen other countries will do that. And that's going to be a very important, important thing for us to kind of look at as we look, you know, two, three, you know, five years down the road on who are our allies, what emerging markets start taking a little bit more significance and a larger role in our globalized world.
2: I want to go back very briefly. You mentioned how there are different ways in which certain countries in Africa have sort of leapfrogged technologically. And, you know, there there are a number of sort of tech hubs that have emerged on different parts of the continent, including places like Kigali and Rwanda or Nairobi. I've heard folks refer to as Silicon Savannah and so forth. And, you know, I imagine in so many ways, like having that sort of energy and innovation is fantastic. But I'm curious how you think the United States and and let's say, you know, other, other, you know, non-African countries can help to further some of those, you know, innovation efforts without intentionally or unintentionally essentially engaging in like digital colonialism and the sort of extraction and exploitation of, you know, user data and so forth. What's the right balance there? I would imagine it's good to have private capital, international private capital coming into these markets. But how do you like strike the right balance when it comes to technological investment?
1: Yeah, so I think advancement of civil society should never be looked at as something that could be you know, negative towards, towards a country. I think that there's a role for U.S. government to play and there's a role for the you know, private sector to play as well. And I think you've seen agencies like the Development Finance Corporation are good examples of that. And I think that oftentimes we have historically had a policy where the DFC actually cannot mm. invest in some of these these markets that they should, whether that's in banking or whether that's through broadband or whether that's through any you know technologically advanced areas. If in Congress we are governing through placing sanctions on people it ultimately hurts civil society and so when investment in a country is halted because of sanctions being placed on countries or leadership in countries it ultimately hurts civil society the most and then it also allows for the people or it doesn't allow for the people and civil society to actually benefit from the investment that's happening in country and then i think that's when investment starts happening and Civil society gets ripped off, they don't get included. And ultimately, that is what's truly, in my opinion, negative for technological advancement happening on the continent. I, I think that you've seen areas, and when a lot of African diaspora folks and you know, folks from the continent leadership talk, they talk about that partnership. And I think that those areas of mutual understanding and knowledge, we've seen the importance of protecting cybersecurity here in the United States. We've seen the importance of making sure that there's universal broadband in both rural areas and suburban areas. And we've done that investment here domestically. And some of those things are same and and government had to intervene to put up some capital so that the private sector could, could do that. And I think that that same thing needs to be, you know, that there wasn't a policy of in a red state or a blue state, we should give x amount or whatnot. and I think that same uh prior that same kind of outlook when it comes to investment in these tech areas should be looked at um regardless of what fifty which one of the fifty four countries you're you're exploring uh investing in and i I just hope that we no longer pigeonhole some of our great agencies from being able to do work that will provide jobs, will increase access to capital for folks and will allow for emerging markets to become these tech engines that we really need to see on the continent. So I want
0: to circle back. One of the things you said earlier was that the AU and West African countries had rallied behind Ruto as the new leader of Kenya. I consider myself someone who actively follows foreign policy. I still don't understand the African Union. What's going on with the African Union? What is it? How does it work? Cuz like the European Union is like way more integrated. So like what's the goal of the AU? How does it function?
1: Yeah, so um so slight correction, it's East African countries have been the ones who have been rallying behind and you know have publicly said I think every country that's a part of the East African Community has actually said uh, congratulations to Ruto um for winning the the Kenyan election. And I think the best place to start, I think, when you're talking about regional, when you're talking about understanding the continent, is you can do a top-down approach, but I would start kind of on the country-to-region approach and then ultimately moving to the African Union. Let's take East Africa, for example, because East African community, it's uh, Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda, Tanzania, Burundi, and Congo, and I believe South Sudan are all part of the East African uh, community. Their goal is to do have a couple of things. First, it's been interesting to see there's now one standardized language that's t- taught in primary and secondary school, and that's um, that's Swahili, also uh, English as well. Then the second goal would be to integrate economically, and so having one standardized currency for all of those East African countries, and so your larger economic powers like uh, Kenya. Um, would, you know, their currency would take a little bit of uh, a hit because of having to, you know, deal with other, you know, markets that aren't growing uh, or haven't grown as quick as that of Kenya. And then I kind of then look at, and then ultimately they would want to do kind of a, ultimately in their charter, I believe there's a political federation where kind of see their, the their form of government more integrating. And ultimately Having kind of one head of state in that region with five different five different folks who are, or in respective of each country, another system of government. And I kind of see the AU as being a, a goal of how do we, in first part, make sure that there's inter-trade between regions and then also within the continent, rather than trading a good or a service to any country in Europe or North America or in Asia and having that good come back? How do we make sure that we're integrating these markets and buying and selling within each region? And how are we also ultimately buying and selling from an economic standpoint within the continent? There are goods and services that are needed in East Africa that West Africa can provide, and they're likewise in South Africa and North Africa and so i think that the economic integration part of it is kind of the first mission of the african union and the second one is how do how does the african union show that and how are they a body for africans to also solve african issues and have a seat at the table to represent what's happening on the continent i view that as having one one body who and having a leader at the head of that body who then can uh, be able to broker disagreements, whether it's in country or whether it's between two countries, and ultimately being a convening body to make decisions that benefit the continent. I like this model. I think a lot of times, and and a sentiment that you'll hear both in the diaspora and on the continent is that there has been a dependency, whether you look at either side of the hemisphere to these different uh, nations, and how do we actually develop and partner within first and show strength in that, then to ultimately work and partner, and show that there's ways to co- that we've collaborated internally within uh, within the continent that we can ultimately do that within different countries, nations, and other kind of efforts, like whether it be the EU or folks in North America. So, with that, let's
0: turn to our final segment, where we each talk about something we've been following in the news, either politically or culturally bo why don't you kick us off
1: one of the things that um that I'm watching is we're having the Africa Leader Summit that's coming up in, in in December i think a big part of that i think the big part of way that folks identify with the continent is from a cultural perspective i'm a big fan of east african food i i believe the samosa originated in in uganda um, and I'm willing to debate anyone who uh, would dare think otherwise. The nexus and something that I'm watching is how are states, cities, localities going to be involved in what's happening on the continent? I think that that's going to be an interesting reality of what happens. You see a lot of festivals in Minnesota, they just declared uh, August, I think, 13th, National Evo Day, I think you've seen a lot of states take on a, a mantle of how do we include the, the diaspora. And so one of the things that I'm looking for is how do, you know, diaspora businesses grow in terms of kind of the cultural significance, the food significance and, and, and whatnot. But then how do states and localities really get involved in promoting what's happening and what is possible between states and different countries on the continent? Zoe, what are you following this week?
2: To end on a bit of a lighter note, um, as we are just heading into fall, it is now pumpkin spice latte season and Starbucks has launched pumpkin spice lattes almost earlier than they ever have before, but not, I, I think not the earliest in history. And so I thought I would just share some interesting tidbits, regardless of what you think about pumpkin spice lattes. It has been an interesting cultural phenomenon. And apparently, when the company launched pumpkin spice lattes, I guess I should call them PSLs, in 2003, it was very controversial within the company whether or not this was a good idea, but it ended up becoming the company's top selling drink in 2003. But it wasn't until 2015, so many years later, over a decade later, that they changed the formula to actually include some pumpkin in it. So now if you drink pumpkin spice lattes, apparently there is actually a little bit of pumpkin. You know, I would say personally, pumpkin spice lattes are not my cup of tea or coffee, but interesting to follow those cultural things.
0: This week, I want to highlight the new UN report about human rights abuses in Xinjiang province in China. The report taught us nothing new about what was going on in China but did confirm a lot of previously reported issues, including forced labor and sexual assaults. I've talked a lot about the genocide happening to the Uyghurs and the Biden administration's inaction on this issue. I hope this report provides another opportunity to put pressure on the administration to step up and challenge one of the biggest ongoing human rights abuses in this millennia. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z. Weinberg, and follow Beau at Beau Machayo. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by Larry, the Chief Mouser to the Cabinet Office of the United Kingdom at 10 Downing Street. Keeping 10 Downing Street free from small vermin, but still working on keeping out large vermin. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.